I think that putting ourselves in a position to have uncomfortable conversations allows for us to really have the progress that we seek to make as a collective group, as the human race, as people in general. And I think that that time period especially showed the team was cut at the same time as, you know, the George Floyd protest. And seeing these things come together in different ways, we have to be comfortable with the idea that sometimes the tough conversations that we need to have are going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be hard. But to do the right thing for the people that need it, these conversations need to be had. Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Kevin Boyce. Kevin is uh, actually just recently graduated from Brown University, and this week and next week, I've decided to talk to current and recently graduated university students. This week with Kevin, who, as I just mentioned, is from Brown University, and then next week with two women that are at Dartmouth College. And the reason I wanted to do this is to get a feel for Gen Z and what university life is like in a presumably post-COVID world. I am an optimist. And to get a feel for especially students from minority backgrounds and what it's like to go to Ivy League institutions and fit in, not only fit in, but change. And it's kind of fantastic, really, when you talk to these folks about how they're just kind of grabbing the opportunity, almost like taking no prisoners. They're just going to make stuff happen in their own way. They each want to change the world. And that is just so inspirational, especially at a time where the world is just struggling in so many ways. This week's guest, Kevin Boyce, is from Columbus, Ohio, and graduated from Brown University in the class of 2021. He was a star athlete on the men's track and field team as a sprinter, and he studied entrepreneurship, organizational studies, and business. As he says, he was a black man and he wanted to make his voice heard at Brown and encourages others to, quote, get comfortable with being uncomfortable and was very active in creating initiatives to promote anti-racist and pro-black policies. He's actually back at Brown as a master student, master of public affairs. He uh, aspires to a career to make an impact, to make a difference, a transformative impact, in fact, within the social entrepreneurship space that specifically aims to support black urban communities. A major life event occurred for Kevin when he was still an undergraduate on the track team at Brown in the spring of 2020. And if you remember the spring of 2020, it was just when COVID was hitting, at least when we discovered it was. And after an unprecedented semester where students were at home, again, because of COVID being on Zoom, Brown decided to completely overhaul its athletics program. In a brief Zoom meeting, Kevin learned that his track team would be dropped as a varsity sport and actually transitioned to a club one. There were 11 varsity teams that received the same news. There was anger, there was outrage, and there was confusion. One of the points of concern was this accusation to Brown was not only crushing dreams of young kids, college kids, but also ruining the opportunity for many disadvantaged young adults to use track or another sport as an entrance ticket to the Ivy League and a brighter future. There were a flood of lawsuits, drama, parents' involvement, advocacy from students like Kevin. And what happened is that the men's track team and a handful of other squads were reinstated to the varsity level, which tells you what activism is really about. It's an intriguing story. Kevin is just really delightful and thoughtful 
I'm always surprised when I talk to people that are 20, 21, 22, 23, and you just hear this maturity, this understanding. And not all of Gen Z is like this, but a lot is. And Kim Boyce, rather, is a fantastic example of this from Brown University. So let's bring Kevin into the studio and start the SIDcast with Kevin Boyce. Welcome to the SIDcast. This is Sid, Sid Finkelstein, and I am here today with Kevin Boyce. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for joining me. You're near the campus at Brown University now, right? Where you're still a student? Yes, I am still a student. (laughs) (laughs) Although graduate school, aren't you? So you finished your undergrad in 21. Is that what happened? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I finished my undergrad last May. I studied business entrepreneurship and organizational studies. So I did a Brown's open curriculum to classes all over the place. And I was also really interested in public policy, deciding to take another year to get my master's in public affairs to the Watson Institute here at Brown. And that's where you're at now. So that's great. So you just made me think about this, kind of put you on the spot a little bit. What was your best class you took? Because you said you moved around, did a lot of different classes, or maybe there's a bunch of best classes, but what would it be in that short, short list of best classes? The best classes. Do you mean best classes, like my favorite class or best class that I think like helped me like my life trajectory the most? Well, that's a really good question. Maybe they don't overlap now, which is kind of interesting, but they tend to overlap over time as you get older and you look back and say, wow, but I'll take either category from you. Well, I'll say right now, the class that's kind of helped me on my life trajectory is a course that I took called um, Social Entrepreneurship. It was a public policy course, and it kind of combined my interest of business and entrepreneurial practices with policy. Social entrepreneurship is the idea that business enterprises can have some sort of social impact on people or communities, particularly whether it's for-profit organization or a non-profit organization or somewhere in between. And that class kind of shaped how I saw myself entering into both spaces. I think that that'd be really interesting for me to go into one day, like a startup venture that has some sort of impact on marginalized communities, particularly communities of color, particularly urban Black communities. I think that would be something that would be really interesting for me, given my background, both understanding business practices, but also understanding the policy side of things after I get my or after I've gotten this master's. And so that's my class that's helped me on my trajectory the most. But my favorite class, I would say, that's a harder question because I've just enjoyed so many classes here at Brown. Well, that's a good statement about your experience and about Brown. And some of my friends went to Brown. They are regular listeners of the podcast, so they're really happy listening to you, finding it tough to find the one great or favorite when there are so many. <laughs> but is there one you want to share or too many to think about? There are too many to think about, but the one I will share is a course that I shopped my freshman year but wasn't able to take, but ended up taking my senior spring called Blues People, like two of my favorite professors, Professor Trisha Rose and Professor Andre Wills. I think that class in particular was very instrumental in how I was brought into the community here at Brown. And I thought it was very fitting for me to end my time at Brown with that class. What was the name of the course again? Blues People. It was a class that was a religious studies and Africana course. Wow. It's very interesting about these examples, especially the second one, which, as you say, has had a significant impact in you and thinking about yourself and your life and that you enjoyed and gave you some, I guess, greater self-awareness even. But it would be under the category of definitely liberal arts and under the category that says, well, what kind of job are you going to get after getting that? And you may have heard critiques over the time. I've heard plenty of them and they continue to this day from people that say, you know, why are we sending these smart kids to liberal arts schools where they're living the life and they're studying things that have no impact in them? It's not going to help them have a better job. 
I don't agree with that whatsoever, but there's a lot of people that say that. Maybe we can hear your rebuttal as a student really, who's just lived that and it's very fresh in your mind. Yeah, well, my rebuttal to that is, in a way, I always laugh when I hear that because I feel as though I've learned more out of the classes that I've taken in like the liberal arts spectrum of things than I have in like any other part of my life. And it's interesting because for me, I was able to delve into passions that I was interested in and then apply that to different spaces that like I want to see myself in. So for example, I took a lot of Africana courses during my time at Brown. And through those lenses, I was able to operate in spaces that I might not have entered into otherwise with the lens that I could see for both my own personal experience, but also for experiences of people that come before and after me. So and I've walked into spaces in business settings, in internships, or in more professional settings. I've been able to come with an understanding of how to interact with different people who come from marginalized communities and marginalized backgrounds or who haven't been able to and bring people together in a way that allows for people to understand the common experiences that we share, while also understanding that people do come from different spaces, do come from different communities, and being able to walk together in a path that aligns both for that organizational entity and for them personally. So I would say that in general, you would learn a lot of life skills and through the passions that you're interested in that make you more applicable for any sort of job. Because I think at a level, everyone does get very similar educations when you're looking to go into medical school or business or engineering, but it's the classes where you learn how to be personable, you can delve more into your own interests and figure out how to apply those interests into your own workspace. I think that's what makes the liberal education so special and so different. Well said. I always thought about it as when you do a liberal arts degree or at least a strong basis, even if you end up specializing some of the work, other classes, you're learning to read, you're learning to write, and you're learning to think. And those skills are leverageable for every single job of impact or career of impact, one can imagine. I think you're adding something that's not unrelated to that, but maybe a little additive, a little different. And that is, it helps make you a citizen in a way, a person that can try at least to understand other people's points of view and to be able to sit down or talk to or communicate with other people, not to be afraid of other people that are different, to feel comfortable, maybe a bit more in your own skin, which of course in 2022 is sorely lacking in America, actually around the world when you get right down to it and to see some of the terrible things that have been going on this year in Ukraine. But that is not maybe not emphasized enough, exactly what you're talking about. You know what I mean? This ethic of being a citizen, and not necessarily a citizen of America, though, of course, that's true, but a citizen of the world where you could function and you could live and you can breathe and you could interact. Absolutely. Especially given how globalized the world has become, how globalized communities, particularly in America, have become. If you look at any major city, there's so many people coming from so many different communities, living working and interacting together. And I think college campuses are microcosms of that. Learn how to do that well here. And then my generation in particular has been able, or hopefully will be able to take that experience and apply it to how we interact with the world in general. And I think that's like what makes it so special and makes schools like mine so special. I hope that more people get to experience something like that. And I think we'll have to, um, to kind of adjust to how the world will be within the next few decades. Are there a lot of international students that you interacted with? But you just said made me think of diversity in a very broad sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually funny that you mentioned that. I remember one of my closer friends that I've gotten to know, a member of my fraternity. I remember we joined the fraternity at the same time. And he was an international student from Tanzania. It was always interesting talking to him 
just because his experience, his life experience was always so different than mine. He viewed the world a lot differently than I did. He interacted with the world a lot differently than I did. And it was always interesting hearing, like, experience new things. This is his first time, you know, in America, first time over here. Really experiencing new things, understanding new things, understanding how we interact and communicate. And it was really fun to, like, kind of have that experience with him and, like, go through that journey with him. And that's something that I actually had really valued. And I think that he learned a lot from, like, interacting with a lot of students like myself who, like, were born and raised in America. But I think I learned just as much from him, just seeing a different perspective and yeah. understanding that it wasn't always the same. You know, we didn't always see eye to eye, but it was always interesting seeing where he was coming from. I thought that was cool. That's great. It also makes me think of a guest I had on the podcast in this season is George Jojo Bodeng. He went to Dartmouth and engineering, master's degree in engineering. He's getting a PhD now in Zurich. And he's from Ghana, as I mentioned. He's done social entrepreneurship. He has created, originally it was a program for teaching kids in Africa to code, which of course is like learning how to speak a language in the modern economy. And now he's created an app based on it and been doing this while getting a PhD, which is really challenging. It was a great conversation with him. And I'll tell you one thing that it said. I don't know why I was surprised by it, but you and I, aside from age, I have a lot of differences. I'm white and you're black. And he, George Jojo Boating, said he didn't know he was black until he came to America. And I thought, wow, that's like kind of obvious in a way, but a really insightful comment. And I wonder whether your friend from Tanzania had a similar reaction or feeling as he lived in the U.S., which obviously the experience is so different. It has to do with majority, minority, and history and many other things. I mean, I can't speak too much for him, but based of the conversations that I have had with him or other international students from Africa as well, like definitely a common thread. It's so normalized over there that you don't really understand like the social dynamics that come with being black here in America is so different over there than it is over here. And so I would say like yes, but at the same time, you definitely get over here and you realize it very quickly. The social dynamics of race are just so powerful over here in the United States that it's become so apparent and ever-present in how you interact with the world. Yeah, it's actually not quite a controlled test, but a very compelling argument for how the experience of being Black in America is not just what activists are talking about. It's incredibly real because you have other people that look very similar and they never had that experience as they come from Africa. I mean, that's pretty clear cut that there's something different going on here for people, mostly very conservative people that are less sympathetic to the realities of racism and life growing up as a Black person in America. So there's a lot to talk about here, but I just want to get a better sense of your life on campus because you went to school during COVID and you had a good two-year dose of COVID. So I assume you were in school doing remote classes for some period of time and then back in person, maybe this academic year. What was it like? Do you remember? Because I remember as a teacher having to learn Zoom which I never did before. And I had to learn it in a crash course. I was teaching in the end of March 10th or 11th that everything went crazy, at least in the US. So it was like two weeks to learn how to deliver high quality education and experience in a kind of bizarre way. And you had to learn the Zoom interface, but you didn't think about delivering the education. You were there and saying, what's going on? So what was your sense? Do you remember what it was like for you and your classmates as well at that time? Oh, absolutely. I don't think I'll ever forget it. It was such a chaotic experience, just particularly the way that everything unfolded so fast. I remember being on campus at practice one day. I remember the track team. And I remember hearing in the middle of practice, oh, like we have to shut down everything. The season's being canceled. We're all going to be probably sent home soon. And then just seeing how things transformed, unfolded 
over the course of the next few hours, seeing the NBA cancel their season, seeing the borders get closed, and just seeing everything just get so chaotic. And I'm recalling my parents, they're super concerned. I'm super concerned. Everyone on campus is kind of freaking out in a way because nobody in our generation, especially, had seen anything like this happen. I remember eventually going home for spring break and ultimately, you know, never coming back. But it was very interesting seeing how we as a community like adapted to Zoom. It was hard at first, just but not the interface. It was more of just the hard reality of all the friends and community that I'd seen in person for the last few years was just abruptly taken away from me. And so for a lot of us, the hard part came with how do we create community virtually? How do we create community like through Zoom? whether it's through Zoom events, Zoom get-togethers, music, dance parties, whatever we can find that fills some sort of community and feel like we're not alone. The hard part, obviously, was doing school over Zoom, having to sit in class and be on camera looking at a screen for as many hours of a day as you were doing. That was hard. But I think the hard part was the isolation and trying to figure out how to not feel so isolated and so alone during a time where people had to be just so physically distant from each other. That was the sense here as well. So did you learn any new ways to live your life during that time period? And I'll give you a little preamble to that. Well, you were still going to school, obviously, but I was still being a professor, but I had a lot more time than I ever had before because I wasn't traveling anywhere. No conferences, no speaking engagements, no nothing, no research interviews with people. And I ended up doing genealogy and gardening to keep me sane, both connecting to me in important ways. And then, you know, you just keep up doing what you're doing. Probably a lot of people, we did Zoom calls with friends or family or regular basis that some of those are still continuing today. But I'm just curious about you and maybe some of your classmates and friends as well, because especially when you're a student in school, there's so much stuff to do, so much fun <laughs> outside of the class. And you were an athlete. I mean, I shouldn't say were, you are an athlete. But you are on the team, active, and it's not so simple to do it in your home. So it really is a gigantic gap that's left. You got to fill it up at some point. Finding how to fill it up was a very difficult thing that took me most of the, the time during quarantine to figure out. And it, it was nice to know that I wasn't fully alone in it. I had teammates and other friends at Brown that were also struggling to find new hobbies or new things to pick up your time. I think that helped. And I think communicating about that was helpful too. But I would definitely say, like, for me personally, it was hard to not be as active as I had been. Uh, so I had to find new ways to be active. Different runs I could do, I think that helps when I could go by myself just to kind of get out the house a little bit, get a little stir crazy when you're just in the house all hours of the day. I personally love music. I don't make music, but I love listening to music. So that was something that like I really leaned on heavily, listening to more music and going on walks being out by myself, listening to music around my neighborhood, that was helpful. Things like that, that allowed me to still feel like I was had some resemblance of what life looked like before the pandemic began. But obviously, we couldn't do too many things socially or like with people, because even especially at the very beginning, no one knew what was going on. You were just staying in your own bubble. It is a little odd to think about it now. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? But there was no vaccine. There was huge uncertainty. Still a lot of things that are not clear, even you know, two years in. But in the early days, this was the plague that we read about, you know, in history classes or something like that. 
before any treatments, before any vaccines. So when you came back, it must have been like the biggest party ever. I don't mean necessarily physically a party, although it may have been, but psychically, it must have been the greatest thing to come back. Because I know that's how it's been on a small scale. For me, seeing friends for the first time or family members, in fact, that don't live where I live for the first time in two years is really crazy. I think that every person that I know and every person around me, especially here at Brown, definitely appreciated social interactions in our community a lot more when we came back. And when we first got on campus, when I was a senior last fall, it was still chaotic. There was a quiet period. Everyone was still having to isolate. And so like, it was still very hard to see people. The first two weeks we were on campus, it was basically like you still had to stay in your own room. Um, but after a while, we were allowed to create our own groups, our bubbles that we could just maintain and interact in. And I think people really were leaning on that because I think that helped us feel closer together again. And, you know, we couldn't do anything too crazy, no large parties or anything like that, but it was still nice to have some sort of social interaction once we got back. I personally appreciated it and appreciated my friends who I've made here a lot more than I had before. Not saying that I didn't appreciate them, but you really take that for granted when you have it and it's taken away from you. And it's crazy because I remember that week when we were from campus, there were people, seniors, that I knew that I probably wouldn't see for a very, very long time after that. And now that I've gotten to see some of them again recently and just hug them and be around them, even for a brief periods of time, it really just makes me very happy to be around them again and just to have that experience knowing that it could be taken away at any moment. Life is fragile. You have to be very cognizant of that. It's something that your generation has gone through this at a very young age and you've got a 70 year timeline in front of you, hopefully, or longer, who knows, with medical advances. And this is, the sociologists use the term imprinting, and maybe you're familiar with that, imprinting, which is when some event or action or activity or something that happened around in the world that affected you. It's almost like your DNA changes. It's not, of course, true, but it's almost like your DNA changes. And I think the experience of COVID has done that. When you said people take things for granted and then now you know not to, you're like music, Joni Mitchell, legendary Joni Mitchell has a song where one of the lines is, you don't know what you got till it's gone, which is exactly right. One thing I've been seeing and reading about for college kids now that they're back in school, especially for seniors, is that they're trying to pack in everything because they know they've missed out on certain things and there's nothing they say no to. And it's starting to get challenging because learning to say no, in fact, this is a bit of a side point, but learning to say no is a very, very powerful skill. There are some people just not good at it. And you got to be able to do that sometimes. Picking and choosing is the name of the game. Because if you say yes to everyone, then you've cut yourself so thin, you can't have any impact. But anyways, my question is, has it been the case that people just try to pack in everything in the last year or last months? Is that really the case? I would say so, but I also think that at the same time, people who are still very cognizant of the fact that a raging pandemic was occurring all around us, so people wanted to do, be safe, but also like do as many college experiences as they possibly could. But I also think saying no is hard. Creating boundaries is something that I think my generation has been working on, particularly just through this whole pandemic situation. You realize you can't do everything. You just can't. And I think that for me personally, I've had a couple of close friends around me that are really good at setting boundaries and like helped me along with that journey too. But I'd also say that like all of my friends here at Brown definitely wanted to have some semblance of what life would be before the pandemic had started. Last year, as safely as we could, like, you know, there are people who would try to do as much as they could socially because they had been so deprived of it beforehand. But I don't think it was to the point where I think most people weren't trying to be completely reckless with it. At least people around me, which I thought well, was that's helpful. that's good. That's good. 
one of the things I've taught over the years is strategic thinking. And one of the core principles of strategic thinking is deciding what it is you're going to do and deciding what it is you're not going to do. No company can just say yes to every project, every idea and being able, whether you want to call that setting boundaries, I think about it more strategically as much as possible to think about what is it you want to do and recognize that there's some things you're going to have to say no to, or you can't do, or maybe you'll get to later, but you don't want to do right away. It's like a strategy for life at the same time. So you were on the track and field team. So I'm curious about how does that kind of happen? Yes, you must've been an athlete in high school on the track team to get the, to have even that chance. So maybe for all of our listeners that either can't remember from when they did stuff like this, or never had an athletic side to their education. How did this happen that you ended up on the track team? I think my story is very different than a lot of other stories. Uh, With regards to how I ended up on the track team, I ran in high school for my small school in Ohio. was a Division III state champion back in high school and a couple of events. So I was pretty, pretty speedy. But at the time, I was not really speedy enough (laughs) to be fully recruited by Brown or other Ivy League schools. But I was really dedicated to it. I really wanted to be on the team. That was something that I had envisioned for a long time. And although some coaches told me no, this just wasn't for me, that I'd say that I probably looked at other places. Brown was in a unique scenario where they weren't going to recruit me, but they still kept in touch with me, thought I'd be a good fit for the team. And I ended up getting into the school and messaging the coach, asking to walk on. He approved of it and allowed me to meet the team, experience a few of the practice in the fall and see if like, this is something I really wanted to do. And I quickly learned that although Division One track and field at the collegiate level is very difficult, it was something that I wanted to spend my time on, a community that I wanted to be a part of. I think it's been very instrumental to my experience both at Brown and also this person I've become over the last five years. So it's just been a very, very positive experience. But yes, to answer your question, I had a bit of a different journey to get here. What is your event or events? What do you do? So I'm a sprinter. So I run anything between the 60 indoors, the 100 outdoors, and then the 200 and 400 meter dashes and all the relays that accompany those. But I specialize particularly in the 400 meter dash. My father actually ran in college and he was a 400 meter dash sprinter. So I guess I get my genes from him in that regard. (laughs) So maybe we can just, because I'm curious, get a little bit geeky about running. I won't go too far because I don't know how many people care about it, but I just find every topic interesting and know a little bit of the technology behind it. So what does it take to be a fast runner? What kind of muscle movements or is it possible for someone to train themselves to be a Olympic caliber sprinter if they weren't born with certain DNA? In other words, good, but not the legendary runner that ran away with the Olympics several times. What are the things you need? Well, I won't get too nerdy about it because I can nerd out about track and field for a long time. But sprinting in particular is a very technical experience. It's not just going out there and just running as hard as you can. A lot of it is form. A lot of it is positioning of your body. A lot of it is just general strength. Yes, some of it is like natural ability. A lot of sprinters have different quick twitch muscles that most people don't necessarily have that allow them to just put their feet down really quickly and get up to speed really fast and maintain it. But a lot of it is very technical and at all its level, you know, everyone's skilled. And so it comes down to who's better technique-wise. And obviously there's some people that are just so naturally talented, but a lot of it does come down to technique and you know, work ethic and stuff like that. And I think that not everyone can train themselves to be an Olympic caliber for athlete. Like that's a very different type of athlete. But sprinting in general, I think people should know that sprinting 
and just running in general is very different in, on track and in track than it is in other sports. Just because you're fast, football field or basketball court does not necessarily, it might, but it doesn't necessarily translate to what it looks like on the track. The technical part is interesting because it means that you could learn, it's technical, so you could learn how to understand the technology of running, become really expert at that, and you could practice and practice to become in the optimal shape that your body allows you to, given what your makeup is. But you mentioned fast twitch muscles that you may or may not have the same, not everybody has the same level. The runner I was talking about or thinking about was Usain Bolt from Jamaica. It was unbelievable to have watched him in several Olympics. So on the team, you were a walk-on. Did that mean you had a chance to compete? Mm-hmm. I've competed numerous meets, but as a walk-on, basically the only difference was that I wasn't formally recruited by the university or by the coaching staff. So like I had conversations with the coaching staff at different points, but they weren't recruiting me. I ended up emailing them after I had gotten into the university and just saying, is this a possibility given my previous times that I've ran in high school? And they said, yes. What was your fastest time actually, say in the 100 meters? In 100 meters in high school, I didn't really run the 100, to be honest. Oh. I was more, yeah, that's actually a great question. I honestly, I do or not even the 200, because most people only pay attention at the Olympics to many sports. It's just the reality of the thing. And you see that the difference between gold medal and fifth place is in a tenth of a second is mm-hmm. possible. It's unbelievable. So that's why I'm curious. Maybe I'll rephrase. How far off were you in your best running? Maybe it was 200 meters or could have been 400 to what an Olympic athlete gets. Because I have a feeling it was not a lot in the scheme of things. It wasn't like three seconds. <laughs> not in the 100, no. Because, you know, Olympic record is nine seconds in the 100. But for me, you know, right now, I'm running 11 flat and high in the 100. So it's like close. It seems close. But if you look at an actual 100 meter dash race, it's significant distance. And if you look at times from like high school, if you look at the 200, the world record in the 200 is like 1919. And I, in high school, was running, you know, 23 something. I'm now running in the 21s. And that's a huge gap. The gap between the 21 and the 19 second 200 is also huge. So, you know, and not, this is not just for you, but for the whole team, let's say. I mean, it's not always the case, but it's probable that there's no one on that team that's going to be the best in the world. We're going to get to the Olympic game. I mean, it happens at Dartmouth. There's a bunch of athletes to get to the Olympics, mostly unsurprisingly in snow-based sports, cross-country skiing and downhill and moguls and other. You know, Hannah Kearney, who grew up actually right here and went to Dartmouth for a short time, won a gold medal in the freestyle moguls. And actually there's a bunch of others. But I guess my question is, what motivates someone when you know that you're just never going to be the best or close to the best? Now, that's not true for everyone, but it's true for probably most people, I'm going to guess. Actually, by definition, it's true for almost everyone. What motivates you? Because sports and athletics, it is being driven to win, but you want to be the best, the best you possibly can. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what does it mean to win and how do you deal with the fact that there's really no one on the team with very, very rare exceptions going to be able to be at the Olympic caliber? For me personally, I think for a lot of people on the team, it's not always just about being the very best of the best. Because especially if you look at schools like Brown or Dartmouth or you know, other high caliber schools, like it's very rare that any person is going to be the very best of the best. But what it's about is just being better incrementally each and every day. I go to practice every single day just trying to be a little better than I was the day before, a little better than I was the week before. And that progress gets me to being able to win and gets me to the PRs that I want to see and being the best that I can be. Sometimes you lose and sometimes you win, but I believe that if 
we are working towards like being incrementally better each day, then you can't really ask for much more from yourself. And I think that applies outside the track too. In general, like in the classroom or in the workplace, oftentimes somebody somewhere is doing something better than you. Some way, shape, or form, they're doing something better than you. They're better off. They're doing this, they're doing that. They've got this internship. They have that job opportunity. They've got this scholarship. Someone somewhere is doing better than you. And you just kind of have to deal with that. It's always going to be like that, and that's okay. But if you're on your path, what you need to do and getting better and you're getting better and whatever that looks like for you, you're getting the opportunities that you've worked for, that you've earned. You can't really compare yourself too much to like some of the other people who are doing amazing things as well, but just doing it in their own path, in their own journey. I think you learn that a lot in athletics, particularly at this level, because we're all very competitive individuals. You should see us at practice. It's a battle every day, but it's a constructive battle because one of my teammates beats me. That's okay. I obviously don't want to lose, but I also understand that at the end of the day, we might be in different places. If I'm in a race and my teammate is next to me and he beats me, but we both ran the two best times we've ever ran, the two fastest times we've ever ran. Should I be mad? Not necessarily. I can obviously be disappointed that I didn't win, but I still mm-hmm. did well. So I think that's how I look at it and how a lot of my athlete friends do look at it. And I will say, I will add, I think that just to hype up my team a little bit, I do think that we have some really big caliber athletes, good caliber athletes that could run at that level. We have a world record hurdler. One of my teammates, Hannah Bearcat, actually ran for Palestine in the Olympics this past year for in Tokyo. So we definitely do have some people that could get to that level. Bertram Rogers is one of the hurdles at the school records right now. Two of my close teammates and two teammates that actually I came in with in 2017 and I'm graduating with this year. But I have graduated with. I just think that in general, if you know you're not really going to be the very best of the best, you have to one, believe that you can be, but two, just work to get incrementally better every single day. That's the journey itself. That's the battle itself. And that's just how life is. That's a really interesting response you just shared, Kevin. I like it. It's this combination of trying and getting better every day. So Mark Shapiro, someone who's been on the podcast a couple of times over the first three years, is the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays. And his mantra for the entire team, including front office people, is just get better every day. That's what he wants. And so it's kind of interesting that you're saying that because not everyone is going to, I mean, they're professional athletes, so they are kind of unbelievable, but it includes someone in PR and includes someone in the training room and includes someone that's selling tickets and everything else. And the other thing you said is to be, I guess, careful about how you compare yourself to other people because there's always somebody better at something. And that, of course, is the reality, unless you are the Olympic gold medalist. The world champion. And there's only one of those out of, you know, how many billion people in the world, then there's somebody better than you at something. That's okay. Cause you can go a little crazy trying to compare yourself to other people all the time. And then the third thing I'm going to say is, and I said this in other podcasts, I think I learned this from Michaela Schifrin, who is the downhill skier, US skier, certainly in the top five ever women skiing and has the potential because she's still relatively young to be the best ever. And she has said that what she tries to do is to run the single best race in her life every time. And she knows, and of course she wants to win. She's won more than almost anyone, as I said, but she cannot control the fact that some skier from Norway actually had an unbelievable run and actually did better and won the gold medal or finished first in in the race. She can't control that. Therefore, she doesn't worry about that. And that's very similar to what you're saying as well. And I do agree there's a very powerful kind of life lesson in there 
Because it doesn't mean just, well, let's not worry about it because I'm not going to be the best. You could be the best for you individually. You could accomplish. And best, of course, can be defined in lots of ways. It's kind of straightforward in sports. There's a score at the end of the day, a time, a final score. But outside of athletics in the world, what counts is impact. And it's very hard to know as the biggest impact. The more people that are gaining, that are having some type of impact, the better, because that's what the point is. So there's a couple of things I want to ask you, but we haven't touched on a lot. Actually, on the track team, I understand that Brown at one point eliminated the track team, just kind of cut it in the middle of COVID, maybe for cost reasons, maybe, I don't even know, because some other universities and Dartmouth also, I think, eliminated some programs. That must have been a crazy thing. And it's been reinstated because you're talking about back to playing. So what was your reaction and how did you get it back? I'm sure you had something to do with it, given (laughs) you're not a sit back and just let the world come to you type of guy. Oh, I'm certainly not. That whole experience, it was a 12-day ordeal for sure, for certain, that I think really impacted how I viewed my own sport and my team in general. But my first immediate reaction was just grief, to be honest with you. Like I said earlier in our conversation, like you don't know what you have till it's gone. That was a real moment of not knowing what I had till it was gone. Track and field is a hard sport. It is a very difficult sport to do. We're training nine months out of the year, six days a week, sort of training all the time from September till May, constant training. It can be very difficult in training physically and mentally and emotionally. And so sometimes you'd like, do I really want to do this? Is this something that I'm really passionate about? And then it gets taken away from you in the blink of an eye. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, like this is something that has been a part of me and my identity for years now. has been a critical and integral part of the communities that I've been in on this campus the people I've been around, the people that have impacted me and transformed me into the person that I am here today, a lot of them have gone through the track and field program. And I remember sitting there at home, stunned after an impromptu Zoom call. I was very, very clearly not expecting. And I didn't know what to do. A lot of men on the team didn't know what to do. But very quickly, the men and women realized together that this is not something that we could just sit down and let happen. At the time, no teams have really ever fought to back to get like reinstated in the way that we did. But we created a campaign, men and women together, particularly the women that we leaned on a lot to help us as to support us both emotionally and physically. And we also leaned on our alums to help us plan an intricate campaign to help people see why Brown Track and Field deserve to be a sport, why Brown Track and Field deserve to remain varsity and remain to be an experience for students particularly marginalized students that have an an outlet, an entryway into this space, a predominantly white space at the Brown University. And I think that we found out very quickly how much of a team we were based off of how fast we organized and supported each other. And we were able to turn this decision around in 12 days, which I don't think I've ever seen before. That's something that I don't even think we as a team expected. But I think it shows how strong we were as a group, as an entity to work together day in and day out for, you know, insanely long hours of the day (laughs) to make this happen. Wow. And 12 days. So what do you think kind of was the key? Because that's pretty quick to turn around in the part of the administration. I think storytelling was really important because I think when the decision was made, I don't think the university understood the dynamic and the importance of what the Brown track and field team meant to the community at large and also the community that had created within itself. And I think that we as a group were able to explain just how impactful it was, both 
for how we create community in within ourselves and also this how brown track and field is an avenue for things that brown claims to stand for when we the team was cut one of the reasons that they decided to cut the team was that it would or it would maintain the same levels of you know like students of color in the athletic department but if you look at the numbers brown track and field was one of the most diverse teams on campus and allowed for a very widespread access to a sport that, you know, didn't require a lot of equipment, doesn't require a lot of expensive practices. You just need a pair of trainers, some shorts, and a pack. <laughs> and I think that allowing people to see how if you cut this team, I think the percentage was it would cut 25% of Black men in the athletic department just by cutting this one team alone. 25% a quarter. We had the most Black men and most minorities on the team other than the football team, just by pure numbers wise. So it's just cutting a team like that, allowing for community that, like I, we said earlier, you know, we're talking about how the world is becoming more globalized and interacting with different people. Like this is the community that does that. And I think that once we told that story and explained to them how impactful it had been for students like myself who walked on, students that were recruited, and students that have come and gone through the program, I think that the school began to truly understand what a mistake they had just made. Both people who have been the decision makers and also the community at large, because you know, track and field is not the most prime time sport in the United States. But I think people were listening and realizing the impact that track and field had on people. And I think that storytelling was very critical in getting the decision to get the team reinstated. Storytelling, always, always important because it's about people. And it's not just, I mean, you obviously had the facts and the figures and the 25% number and other things like this, but the impact on individuals. Whenever I hear a story like this, that just doesn't seem like a good decision that was originally made, was made maybe under pressure or stress. I mean, you could imagine the COVID hitting and not everybody maybe was at their best, but really it's kind of puzzling. I mean, I've spent a lot of time studying leaders that make mistakes and sometimes some pretty bad things they do for all sorts of reasons, but other times they just fall into it and I guess to the credit of the administration, the change was made and 12 days is really crazy quick. Were other teams that were cut, were they reinstated too, or some of them were? Some of them were, some of them were not, unfortunately. I'm not entirely sure of the long list of teams that did get reinstated versus did get cut, unfortunately. We were the first team to get reinstated. And I think a few months later, other teams were reinstated. I think the equestrian team and the fencing team were. Yeah. So somewhere I saw that you said, it's a great quote, if it's accurate, you said, people need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Is that accurate? And what did you mean? I did say that. And I think that that was especially apparent in 2020 due to what we saw was just the racial climate in the United States. After the death of Breonna Taylor, after the death of Amada Arbery and George Floyd, people were still uncomfortable having conversations about what I and many other Black students at Brown and Black people in the United States in general saw as something that was painfully obvious that we have a problem with regards to racial injustice and police violence in the United States. When I said that quote, it stemmed from the fact that we as a community need to have conversations that do make us feel a little uncomfortable from time to time about like our place and it's our impact upon how students or how we inflict harm in areas, particularly with regards to racial issues. But I also think that it stems not just at a police 
state violence level, it goes down to just how we interact with each other in communities at Brown, how Brown as an institution interacts with its students. We have to have uncomfortable conversations about how our impact as a community has had on communities of color in the areas that Brown surrounds are you know, the areas that we all interact with, Dartmouth surrounds, all these other institutions of higher education surround. I think that putting ourselves in a position to have uncomfortable conversations allows for us to really have the progress that we seek to make as a collective group, as the human race, as people in general. And I think that that time period especially showed the teamless cut at the same time as, you know, the George Floyd protest. And seeing these things come together in different ways. We have to be comfortable with the idea that sometimes the tough conversations that we need to have are going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be hard. But to do the right thing for the people that need it, these conversations need to be had. And those conversations are good to have before you're in the crisis situation, because then sometimes you can avoid getting to a situation that's really tough, like the example of the track team being cut. So I'm seeing kind of themes of impact, social entrepreneurship, one of the first things you said at the beginning of our chat. What's your game plan? I guess when you go look for jobs, everybody says, what do you want to be in 10 years? What do you want to do in five years? <laughs> but I won't ask you that necessarily unless you figure it out. And then I have some things I've learned about that path from talking to a lot of people. But what do you think is your next step after you graduate? My next step, I'm definitely very interested in doing policy or like government work right now. I think that's something that's really interesting to me. But I'm also learned through college is that you might have an idea where you might want to be in a few years, but you have to be very flexible. I learned anything during the pandemic is that things can change at snap of your fingers. And so like for me personally, I am very much trying my best to be flexible to where I want to be within the next few years. But if I had an idea, I want to be able to be part of entity and organization that allows me to have some sort of impact on a significant group population. And I don't know what that looks like, but I would like to have some sort of impact on people who need help, who don't necessarily have, who are not necessarily given the resources that I've been given to be successful. So I'm very blessed and privileged to be able to say I graduated from Brown University with two degrees and be able to like see the world in the lens that I see it now. But a lot of people, particularly Black men, particularly Black women, have never seen or have never had that opportunity before either. And so I would like to give back in that in some way. I would like to be able to provide some sort of resource. And I don't know what that looks like. I really don't. But like I said, I'm flexible because if I know anything, it's that the right opportunity will come. I'm being completely honest with you. I never dreamed of the fact that like I would be able to go to Brown University. That was something that I never saw coming. And I see now as like there's a specific reason for that. And I think that everything does happen for a reason. I don't know when. I'll know how to get to that path. Something will happen and I'll see it. I'm excited for when that happens. In the context specifically of universities and then what you're talking about, you said that there's lots of people, lots of black men, lots of black women that have not had the opportunity you've had. If I were to generalize, I think that there's a huge, I'll call it an untapped talent pool of smart young people that barely even know Brown or Dartmouth exists. Maybe they don't even know it exists. They don't know what they don't know, but they were fortunate enough to have some level of raw intellect that would enable them to succeed in some more challenging environments, but they don't even know what's an opportunity. I know that every one of the Ivy League universities have been spending more and more time on this very problem to look for people from disadvantaged communities all over the country and present to them, teach them, let them know what might be possible. And it might not be for everyone. Might, there's lots of reasons why it could work or not, but they're trying to expand that talent pool of people. 
And I know at Dartmouth, maybe at Brown, they do that too. One of the statistics people like to talk about, the alumni office talks about it, the administration talks about it, is the percentage of students that are first-time college students, which I think is a fantastic metric. There's plenty of people that have had lots of opportunity and come from families where they're going to have more opportunities and they go to these universities, but they're going to probably be okay whether they win or not. But there's a lot of people where it's going to totally change your life, dramatically change your life forever. And so if you think about where do you get the biggest return on investment and in what a university and this is not just elite university, any university, but what a university can add to an individual. The greatest return on investment is when somebody comes in where they would be highly unlikely to have gone down a particular set of career paths because those opportunities were not even visible. So I say all that because when you're searching around for where to have an impact, that is, I think, a huge opportunity and one that certainly every Ivy League school and probably lots and lots of other schools are spending some time thinking about. And I don't think they've cracked the code on it yet. Yeah, no, they definitely haven't, but I definitely agree. I think that for a lot of people, an opportunity like this is life-changing. And I think it's changed my life in a lot of ways. You know, I never forget, like, when I opened that letter and thought about this is something that could be a possibility for me. And I pray that that's an opportunity that happens for more people that look like me to enter into a space that spaces just like this. Like I said, with being comfortable with being uncomfortable, I think that's a conversation that we as an institution like, have to have. And I think that there is definitely work that is being done. I remember I was a member of Brown's Anti-Black Racism Task Force that worked on you know, figuring out ways that the school can work to be anti-racist. And I think that's something that has been discussed, making sure that you know more people learn about the university, more people apply and are considered. I think that that's super impactful. And that's just something that's so small that can be super transformative. And not just make sure that they can get in, but helping make sure that they can afford it as well. That's also critical too, because the cost of higher education in general is in and of itself a barrier. Whether it's Brown or Dartmouth or whether it's a state school, it's still a barrier of entry that is preventing people that look like me from entering into these spaces. I think to really be anti-racist and to be supporting of marginalized communities, we have to be really understanding of the financial barriers that prevent people from even who might know about the university, but will never apply. So I, I can never afford that. So I think that's something that also has to be discussed too. Absolutely. Okay, one last question for you, Kevin. We've been going an hour. The time doesn't always fly. So usually I ask a final question about advice, but it's kind of funny because I say to people, imagine you were 20 years old, but you were just 20 years old, not that long ago. So I'm going <laughs> to switch it a little bit for you. What advice would you have for someone in high school, maybe yourself, back five or eight years, whatever that was, you know, five years ago, let's say, that would like to get into a Brown or any good university and want to get a ticket to this place that could change their life. It's not that their father or their mother went there or anything else, right? What advice would you have to people like that, kind of where you were five or six years ago? I would say take risks. I don't want to give the advice of just like, oh, do your extracurriculars, I, you know, study really hard, I, you know, like ACT or the SAT, like, Take risks and do what you love because if you take risks and get a little bit out of your comfort zone, you're going to find the passions that you care about. For me, I think about when I was in high school, I decided to take Mandarin my freshman year. I had never thought that, that would be something that I could consider, but I decided to do that. And it led to me having an opportunity to travel to China in high school. That experience opened my world of seeing like, oh, wow, like the world is such a huge place with so many different people. Like I love the idea of taking risks and like, meeting people and getting a little uncomfortable because you learn so much from those experiences. I think that that's being able to take risks and do something 
that might be a little different is something that makes people one, stand out, and two, also helps you find out what you truly love and what you're truly passionate for. And that goes to my next point of doing what you love, because at the end of the day, if you're not doing what you like, you might not be that good at it, and it's not going to get you to where you want to be. I think for me, when I look back at my high school experience, I never did anything that I didn't think I genuinely enjoyed. I think that for me, I did everything because I wanted to. You shouldn't do extracurriculars if you don't want to do it. You shouldn't do a sport if you think that that's just going to be the way you get into university. Like, don't do that. You don't want to do that to yourself. Do something that makes you that you're passionate about. And if you take a risk, do something that you might, you're not sure about, that you think you might like, that might allow you to find that passion and allow you to experience things that make you the best candidate for an institution like this. It's not the stereotypical student that just gets in and does super well at these universities. Every single student is so unique and different and has so many unique and different passions and comes from so many different perspectives and point of view and experiences. Embrace that. Embrace your own journey because your journey is not like anyone else's. If you embrace that, if you take those risks, if you find those passions and just really embrace them, whatever that passion may be, the right place will come for you. The right place will call for you. The right place will find you. I genuinely believe that everything happens for a reason. And I think you do the thing that you love, the right place will come. You'll find that school, you'll find that entity, organization, whatever it may be. And you might not know at the time, but you'll realize why that place came to you at some point. I think that's kind of what happened with, with Brown for me. And it might not be Brown for everyone, but everyone will have that moment of clarity if they embrace their passions and take risks. That's my advice. That is really good advice. You are wiser beyond your years, Kevin. I've enjoyed the conversation and getting to hear your story and your journey on the way through and maybe on the way out of Brown. We'll look forward to sharing this story with everyone on the SIDCast and all of our listeners from around the world. Kevin, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season four and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single new episode. The SIDCast is growing. We have more listeners than ever before and more stories to share. This idea I had four years ago for real conversations with real people, informal and informative. Well, it's taking off and that is thanks to you. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please consider giving us a five-star review and especially share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company.